0: You're tuned to Hybrid Pod, a show that explores the spoken conversation around critical digital pedagogy. It's the oral side of hybrid pedagogy, a digital journal of learning, teaching and technology. I'm Chris Friend. Much of the conversation about modern education discusses what we as teachers can say or do within our classrooms. Relatively little attention is paid to what we can hear from our students. In this episode, we'll explore some of the benefits we can get and improvements we can make if we essentially talk less and listen more. Now, listening to students in a music class probably seems like an obvious starting point, but there's more to music education than just student performance. Listening can be a valuable teaching skill in music appreciation and music theory classes as well. To get us started, I spoke with this guy.
1: I am uh, Martin Kutnowski. I'm Associate Professor in the Fine Arts Department and Director of the Fine Arts Program at uh, St. Thomas University in Fredericton, Canada.
0: About using popular music in classes that typically study classical composers. Martin uses music familiar to his students as a way of finding common ground and establishing a starting point for discussion of music. He wrote an article on hybrid pedagogy titled Daring Conversations, Searching for a Shared Language, in which he argues that teachers need to present information to our students in light of, or in the context of, student experiences. In his article, Martín suggests teaching Lady Gaga in music classes. Yes, you heard that right. Lady Gaga as content in post-secondary music appreciation class. It's his way of respecting the existing knowledge that his students bring to his classes.
1: These... Uh, concern or this uh, learning on my part goes back to the 90s, the late 90s when I was teaching in City University of New York and I was teaching a music appreciation course and I had these 50 students in the room who didn't know anything about Beethoven they didn't know who Beethoven was, they thought Beethoven was a dog, a furry dog, but they knew the Simpsons very well, right? they knew who the Simpsons were and so My my first uh, or one of my first uh, attempts uh, at uh, unpacking, let's say, the concepts to a format that was familiar to the students goes back to that time. And what I did was putting in the same lecture Simpsons and Beethoven. So it wasn't the Simpsons and not Beethoven, but was actually uh, about 50 percent of the time starting with the Simpsons. And then moving to a more complex, more uh, abstract, more remote example from the Egmont Overture uh, by Beethoven. So, uh, in a way, uh, the you know Lady Gaga there is is a little bit of an to make it sound a little bit like a scandal, you know. But but the truth the truth is that it's not either or. It's not. Um, There are things that we can learn from Lady Gaga that we cannot learn if we study Mozart. But there are also many things that we cannot learn from Lady Gaga, and we can only learn from Mozart. And a priori, we we shouldn't close any doors.
0: Martin's concern about closing doors is a necessary warning, particularly with the current trend towards standardized and scripted education. I saw the consequences of predicted course content recently with my own students. I tried an experiment one semester where I told students in my first-year writing course that our class was no longer called Academic Writing 1, but rather Life 101. I asked them to tell me what they would like to spend 15 weeks learning about in a class that broadly defined. The silence of their response was shocking. Eventually, one student offered this. That's the hardest question you've ever asked us. Through our conversation, I came to see that my students had not been given control of their own education, and as a result, they were not equipped with the tools to manage their own learning. The worry about getting students to take charge of their own learning stretches well beyond the classroom. Martín sees personal agency as a cultural problem.
1: They are not used to to seeing themselves as agents of their own lives. Uh, I mean, also when I advise, um, you know, they come to me, you know, what courses do I need to take? <laughs> I said, I don't know. <laughs> what do you want to take? <laughs> I mean, in a liberal arts school, you have all these these breadth of options, uh, and even the really good ones, they are so afraid of failing that they don't want to take any risks. And then, how can you learn if you don't take any risks? If anything, I I think that it happens to not just to students. I think that uh, we live in a culture that doesn't encourage a lot of honest questions to pose ourselves. What do I really want to do? What do I really want to do today? What do I really want to do with my life?
0: If we want students to have agency in their own learning, they need to have agency within our classes, too. We have to give our students space to ask honest questions about life and personal interests, which means our classes have to be unscripted and potentially messy. It's a risk for teachers, then, to create a class that has an unpredictable path to it. Such classes are also unfamiliar to students, who may not be accustomed to that level of control.
1: It's not what they expected. Because at this point, the expectations are so strong, they really expect the teacher to lecture. And, uh, you know, I had group work and I had them um, talking to each other and uh, uh, creating, you know, we, we looked at the, at the commercial, uh, TV commercial, and they had to create their own, hypothesis about the kind of music that would work with that. It would be so much easier to just give them a textbook, you know, and and lecture and and be so organized this is what we're going to be seeing today, and this is what and and, and just cover everything I mean somebody also you know co- commented that I would have liked to know exactly what the class was going to be about, and I would have liked you know they they really want a more organized a more uh predictable uh format and a more predictable outcome but but to me, you know, I, I, I had to make a decision. It's the decision of the article. You know, what am I going to do? Am I going to go the easy way and, and just um, do a somewhat a routine job? Or am I just, or am I going to hold on to that ideal of a true differentiation, true pedagogic differentiation, so that every student is connecting not just with me, but also with many of them, amongst many of them.
0: Creating a distinctive, pedagogically differentiated course that helps students learn to manage their own learning requires an unusual approach to course design, one that starts with a much broader view of outcomes than we normally propose.
1: And so uh, in these syllabus, I, I went a little bit further and, uh, you know, I put the learning outcomes in the syllabus. And the first learning outcome, I avoided using the word students, because I am a learner, too. Learners learn to teach and to learn from each other. And then I was thinking, okay, what what else that is profound I want them to achieve? So learners reassess their everyday relationship to music. And so I started with the biggest, most ambitious outcomes. And then little by little, I went to, to the more detail down to, you know, learners apply essential terms such as harmony, rhythm, form, melody. I really try to put those substantial goals up front, and the most substantial goal of of them all, that they stop looking at me to teach them and instead learn that what we are doing is really helping each other as we learn together.
0: This idea of learning together can even apply to assessment, For assessment to really do what it's supposed to do, the teacher should be able to learn something about the student's abilities or thinking. Assessment methods can become a way for teachers to focus their attention on trying to understand what students can do. To help with this idea, let's hear from Chris Schaffer.
2: I'm Chris Schaffer. I'm instructor of music theory at CU Boulder College of Music and editor for Hybrid Pedagogy Publishing.
0: Chris says that music theory teachers often evaluate student performance using rubrics and looking for error. He suggests this approach actually prevents teachers from truly listening to their students and understanding what's going on with their work. When listening to student performances, music teachers might focus on the technical details at the expense of understanding the performer.
2: I really wanted to know um, as I was listening um, what I was hearing Is it how many notes are right or how many notes are wrong? Or is it what is the specific challenge that throws them off when they get something wrong? Um, And uh, initially that was so I could better reflect it in a grade and get them properly ranked, right? Um, And then you start to realize, wait, no, no, no. What what I need here is a little more freedom in the assessment to, to engage specifically and pedagogically what's going on if it's not where it needs to be.
0: As an aside, am I the only one thinking about marking papers for grammatical errors here? No? Good. But Chris Schaffer has a different suggestion. Rather than deducting points for mistakes, he instead looks for whether a student's overall holistic performance is passable. That shift has changed not only how he responds to students, but also how he teaches.
2: Back when I used Red Pen in, in- you know, sign papers in in music class and and would evaluate them that if I didn't have a really well-defined rubric that said, no, pay attention to their thesis statement, pay attention to their analysis of these musical elements, And I was marking any little error that I found. Like I was giving much lower grades to people who had commas in the wrong place, like really tiny things that I was just marking. But then at the end, I look and we all psychologically are impacted by the amount of red on the page. And the more there is, the lower the grade's going to be, unless we have something else to counteract that. I've had students where maybe they keep misspelling a certain set of words. And if I'm thinking just, okay, I was going to mark them, and then take points off, you know, be thinking very differently than if I'm thinking, okay, how can I help them make sure that they do this right next time? And so I start thinking, okay, is this someone who like missed their, their rough draft consultation with me and therefore is likely to have done it the last second and maybe just was really tired, got it done really late, didn't, you know, pay attention to spell check and just turn it in. In which case I want to say, okay, so next time come in early, let's get those errors out of the way, Beforehand, you know do the paper earlier in the day, or whatever, if it's someone where it's it's certain if it's like this one word keeps getting confused with its homophone, okay, so they just need to look up those words and I need to direct their attention or they're they're just going to see red ink and, and ignore it on the other case it 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 might be a situation where hey there's three papers in a row that has this issue that kind of looks like it might be like dyslexia or dysgraphia or something that we're dealing with, and so that's and so if i'm thinking how can I help this student get this right. And I'm looking at their work over time instead of just marking what's wrong. That's, you know, that then we can teach them. <laughs> um, otherwise they're teaching themselves. We're, we're just the, 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 the robo graders.
0: That robo grader analogy is apt by listening more carefully to students and by better understanding where they are coming from, much like how Martine works to learn students, musical familiarity, we can engage more directly, more humanely, with our students let's bring the conversation back to the classroom for a minute.
2: When a student is in class, you know there, there are all kinds of factors that go into how ready they are to do what we're asking them to do or to understand what we're um, discussing as a class and one of those factors is what's their family situation like. Um, what are their personal relationships? Like, did they have a six hour opera rehearsal the night before? Did their car break down on, on the way to school? And, and I don't need to know all this information. I, I don't need to stalk them on Facebook or something, <laughs> but if they open up and share some of this, that humanizes them in a sense that like, I'm, I'm not just going to come down because they're not doing exactly what I've decided they need to do. But it, it also just, it gives a a good kind of Element to the class where I realize that it's not about me, and it's not about you know Beethoven and Mozart. You know, it's about these people here, and what they need is you know as, as you know people like Dewey would would let us see they need a, a good set of logical connections in the material um, so that it all makes sense together. But ultimately, we've got to bring that into the social world that they inhabit because they're they're the way they process incoming information has to do with what's in their memory and memory is affected by your emotion and it includes things beyond academia.
0: We start to work with our students as people to really connect with them and understand them. We'll come back to the idea of connecting with students. But first I want to bring one other voice into this conversation.
3: I'm Jonathan Searcy, an assistant professor of English at Charleston Southern University.
0: Jonathan shared with me his thoughts on why listening to students is so important in his pedagogical praxis. It turns out his emphasis on listening to student voices started out with a very practical problem that many of us face in our teaching.
3: How do I efficiently, but faithfully respond to student work? And it comes out of teaching a 4-4 load And wanting to have significant writing assignments, but also wanting to give good feedback and really respond. I mean, in the sort of like distribution of labor, no matter how little time my student puts in on a paper, there's no way I can completely reciprocate that time in how how much time I give to listen to it. You know, like I, I can't. I can't imagine a student even if they were just typing nonsense for 2000 words if I spent like even 15 to 20 minutes on every paper out of 210 papers that would be an astronomical amount of time. So I'm I'm trying to figure out ways of focusing my attention complete when I'm locked in integrating I want to be able to do it for an extended period and do it in a focused way, and what that meant li- literally, and I'll try to expand it in a second here. What that meant was putting headphones on my ears and making my eyes and ears sort of locked in on the same thing. Not music, not grading paper copies while I was watching like NFL games on Sunday. Not uh, not even with the like clatter of a cafe in the background. Sort of ears and eyes on the words my students have written
0: that focused attention isn't just appropriate for reading student work though practicing focused attention on essays has affected jonathan's classroom practice as well he now works hard to be present in the classroom and to hear his students voices in a very literal way
3: listening in this way has been a way of getting out of my own head of like making sure that at the moment where I'm supposed to be most focused on someone else and their work, that I'm there, that I'm present. That's that that's what I think it encourages. And once I'm attuned to that, at the level of like listening to their work on the page and in my headphones, when I'm grading them, I am that much, I've found that it's easier for me to be attuned to their actual voices When, when I'm in class, if they come to my office with the draft of their paper, students read their papers out loud to me. I never silently read them or read it out loud to them. They always read it in their own voice. And I try as much as possible to encourage that in the
0: classroom. We'll hear more about being present in the classroom and about being genuine with students in the next hybrid pod episode. But it's interesting to hear why Jonathan has started relying on genuine listening so much in his classes. During his first year of teaching,
3: I just didn't give my students enough time in the classroom to talk. It wasn't that I was cutting them off as much as I, I, I wasn't I wasn't being silent enough. I wasn't encouraging conversation between students in the way I should have. And so the very pragmatic aspect. Of listening to my students' work and being committed to them there has had the concomitant effect of affecting the way I am in the classroom.
0: But when talking about assessing student work, we don't often hear words like generously used as a standard. Turns out, even that language comes from listening to the academic environment he's working in.
3: I'm in a very specific institutional context. I teach at a Christian school and so the administration above me responds to words like generously. It's a, it's like a good way of talking to someone who's not in the classroom about what I'm doing in the classroom and it fits the sort of core values of the university. I want to extend to my students the same generosity I hope to have from them in the classroom. And that's just to listen, whether they agree or not. But to me, it's about reciprocity. It's about returning the favor. Walking out of the class feeling like we heard each other. That, that to me is a, is a way of putting a finger on moments of education that work. So. There is a continuum between like what it means to really listen to one another and like physically listening to my students' work. Those two things have not been divorced from one another.
0: So after all this talk of listening to the actual voices of authors, I want to bring the conversation around to what initially prompted this podcast topic in the first place. Jonathan wrote an article on hybrid pedagogy titled Faithful Listening, and it's about specifically how he grades papers and why he uses audio to do it. During the peer review process, we realized that in order to best make his point, he had to demonstrate it, and that involved its own complications and the need to include other voices. Jonathan's article explained what got him started with using audio to literally listen to students. He heard an audiobook recording of Jane Austen's Emma, and hearing the words made him realize things about a character that merely reading the text did not. We realized that Jonathan had to make an audio version of his article as well. I won't spoil the story for you, so you really should check out Faithful Listening to hear his rationale. But Jonathan realized a problem when he read the Emma quote as he made that audio version.
3: In that process, in like hearing myself say it, I was like, oh, there's no way I can make this work with my own, with my own speaking voice. I need that recording.
0: Suddenly, an effort to genuinely listen to the voices of others complicated the recording process. Because the voice that he had heard, the voice from the audiobook, was from a recording that was commercially copyrighted. We had to contact the publisher, Naxos Audiobooks, for permission to include the voice of an actress using the words of Jane Austen. Essentially, three other voices had to join in Jonathan's recording, and we were sure to credit them all at the end of the article.
3: It was really important for me to talk. Or at least have you mentioned the acknowledgement we gave Naxos audio like that that was fundamental to the piece to have miss Bates's voice or the actress's version of miss Bates's voice there, and then to actually continue that on and acknowledge the people who made the voice inside the article that was such an important step that wouldn't necessarily. It was a a good lesson for me, so I'm thankful that that happened.
0: But what I take away from this whole process is how hard it is to really listen genuinely. Jonathan, who practices and advocates for faithful listening, nearly missed the now obvious opportunity.
3: I would not have realized that I was missing a quotation from Miss Bates had I not been asked to read it out loud and thought to myself, something is horribly wrong with me reading these words out loud in my own voice so i got to a place with the article and that was just two weeks ago you know the fact that i had gone that far with the piece and not noticed that her voice was gone when that was the entire point to me like oh my goodness
0: so we learned firsthand how hard this process is but the results affirmed just how important and beneficial it can be to really listen faithfully you've been tuned to hybridpod a production of Hybrid Pedagogy, Inc. Just because the show is over doesn't mean the conversation ends. Everyone who contributed to this episode is accessible through Twitter, and so is the show itself. So along those lines, at HybridPod and at Chris underscore friend would like to thank at Chris Schaffer, that's Chris with a K and Schaffer with two Fs, as well as at Martin Kutnowski, that's K-U-T-N-O-W-S-K-I, and At JL Searcy, that's S I R C Y, for adding their voices to today's show. You can also follow and like Hybrid Pedagogy on Facebook, but the best place to go is our home on the web. Find us at hybridpod.audio, where you can hear all our episodes and add to any of the discussions online. That's hybridpod.audio. Thanks for listening.